Hi, this is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm with my friend Agnes Desevich, who is a fellow at the Rockefeller Foundation currently, but previously was the director of the Office of Private Capital and Micro Enterprise at USAID. She's had a fabulous career at the intersection of private capital and development. She was working on impact investing and blended finance before those terms were used or used widely. She's had a fascinating career. I'm really pleased that my friend Agnes is with us today. Agnes, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Dan. It's a pleasure. So Agnes, could you just spend just a minute, please, telling us about how you got started in your career? Started my first job because I was Polish. I grew up in Poland and I spoke Polish. And I did an internship at the Polish Embassy, where someone named Tom Gibson, the founder of Small Enterprise Assistance Fund, SEIF, found me and said, we have our first fund in Poland. We really need someone who speaks the language. Can you join me? I'm trying to really make this something a lot more exciting. And that turned out to be my first job. So I literally fell into it uh, through a very good contact, someone who's become a friend and a mentor ever since. So you were at SEIF. And you were the second employee at SEIF, right? I was the second employee at SEIF. SEIF, for those of you who do not know, is Small Enterprise Assistance Funds, which is a organization that supports SME, small and medium enterprise funds, all over the world. And it was one of the first organizations that started investing in small businesses in Eastern Europe. And Poland was the first fund. I joined them, did... Um, helped them raise their Russia fund, Bulgaria fund, Croatia fund. At that point, uh, Eastern Europe was really opening up, and we felt that small businesses were really key to the economic development of those countries. So this is what I did, and I did it all from Washington, D.C. Amazing. And who were the funders? Who helped when you guys went and pitched money for these different funds? Who put money into those funds? They were mostly multilateral organizations. So USAID was very, very key because they helped us really open up regional offices. So they paid for the bodies, they paid for the, the employees, to pay, keep the lights on, the office space. Exactly. For you guys to say, so you'd go to other funders who would make investment capital and say like, AID is going to cover the salaries of the employees to get this started and your money is going to go 100% into investments, right? That's right. Because as you know, that's probably the hardest money to get. It's really how do you start operations in places where you really don't have a lot of investment officers, where you don't know where to find a pipeline. You really need someone to first start pay for that kind of platform building. And to do some, some shoe leather work to go knock on doors, speak the local language, meet potential entrepreneurs or small business people, and speak to them in Polish or speak to them in Croatian or speak to them in Russian read Cyrillic, et cetera, et cetera, and f suss out and find these things, right? That's right. And to sit down with these entrepreneurs sometimes and to help them prepare their financial statements. Don't, to don't help keep them. money in a shoebox and put it, <laughs> right. put it in a bank Set account. Set up a bank account. Right, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, those things that, that SEIF would really help a lot of these entrepreneurs do. And as a result, it's become one of the most successful organizations at um, helping basically support small and medium-sized businesses all over the world. So how many funds do they have now? I, I think it's like 20. Know. I want to say it's They've probably, probably done about 20 that. country yeah. funds in I know in they're all over Southeast years. Asia. This is starting in what, 1990? 1990-something. So has Michael Levitt been on the board the entire time? Yes, he has. So he's an affiliate <laughs> with our program. Uh, he's a wonderful man. He's been, he's been on the board for 28 years. That's right. It's amazing. No, he's awesome. He's awesome. <laughs> really great so, guy. So you were at SEIF, then you went to business school? 
Then I went to business school. I've decided I really needed some finance skills. I graduated with a degree in international affairs, pretty, pretty general. So I went to business school and out of business school, I was recruited by AIG who at that point was really interested in the pension fund industry in Eastern Europe. That was being privatized, and AIG was one of the big players. They offered me a job to go work in the Polish pension scheme, and I turned that down, and I said, no, I really am interested in investing in local businesses. And they said, great, we're setting up a private equity fund. Go talk to our private equity group. For Poland. For Poland. Actually, the private equity fund ended up being for all of Central and Eastern Europe, and I was once again employee number two at this private equity fund that just had started. It was at that point the largest private private equity fund in Eastern Europe. And that was funded all from AIG money? That was funded all from private investors. So this was like household name pension funds in the US like Correct. Fidelity or CalPERS Correct. or this kind of exactly. folks? Exactly. They were all just starting to put in a foothold into Eastern Europe, which they saw as a growth market. They trusted AIG as a manager yep. of their money. So they basically went in and decided to, and we invested in you know, a bank in so, Bulgaria, a retail chain in Poland. Right, so if, if somebody today in the 2018 said, I want to put money to Poland, I would say, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's not too risky, that's not an emerging market. But in 1996 or 1997, that was much more of almost, an, it had an emerging market feel to it. Exactly, right? I mean, privatization was still going on, right? Privatization in 1996 was still going on. Exactly, so some of those things were, really, really tricky in that it was, there were not that many Westerners, not that many people from, from really uh, the U.S. Or, or yeah. spoke the language, knew what they were doing. Exactly. So I was really you at the unique. right place at the right time. And there were probably a dozen people like you who could have done in the world like you. That's right. Who spoke Polish, had a finance background, had some experience doing this receipt that, you know, there were probably a dozen people in the world. Exactly. At the time. Yeah. And it was, it was fun. And I learned a huge amount. It's amazing. And this, how long were you at the private equity fund? I was there for about five years. And that was, you were living in Poland? I was living in Warsaw. And then what happened? So what happened was I really see put in this kind of development bug in me, meaning that I really wanted to go back to an investment that also had development or an economic growth lens. You know, in private equity, you really are just trying to realize the best value for your shareholders, for your for your investors. So one of the things that I decided to do was leave and try to find a job where I can combine my finance skills and do some good in the world. So I ended up coming back to Washington, D.C., and I ended up working for somebody named Harold Rosen at IFC. So who's Harold Rosen and what was he doing at the time? Harold Rosen was really one of the pioneers at IFC in that he was very instrumental in IFC doing things like investing in the microfinance industry or in the SME space. So if AID is the largest grant maker to, at microfinance, I think it's fair to say that IFC is the largest investor in microfinance. That's that, correct. Those, are those two fair statements? That is correct. And so he was a pioneer in saying we should invest in the microfinance industry? Yes, And then he also, if I recall, Agnes, he said, you know, when we make these investments overseas, it could be a telecom company, it could be a microfinance, it could be a bank. It's oftentimes, like you were saying earlier about CIF, is that we need to sit alongside the business and help them get their books in order or help them to do a better job of connecting with smallholder farmers or working with the government 
to make the regulatory environment, all the stuff that you'd call technical assistance. And he said, we need to do a lot more technical assistance, right? That's correct. And what he realized very quickly was that all these small businesses, in order for those businesses to grow, to get to a point where somebody like IFC or even a private investor a can invest in them, in them right, they really need a lot of assistance. They needed assistance with marketing. They needed to hire a good CFO. They needed to really figure out they how they would board. take. They needed a good board. Exactly. Governance was really key. So when he did all that, that was really... Something this was, what that, was this, like in the mid-90s when he came up with I this I want to say it was in the mid-90s. He set 90s. up SME facilities, uh, technical assistance facilities Basically, he all went over around, the world. He went, he went to European donors and said, hey, I'm going to pass the cup, and if you give me 10 or $20 million, I'm going to set up sort of a, they don't call it technical assistance, but in essence, it's, I'm going to hire people as IFC employees to implement technical assistance in Southeast Asia. That's right? correct. And That's they exactly called it an IFC terminology. It was a facility. But basically, it was sort of like a five-year pool of money, of grant money, to pay for folks and pay for local consulting firms to help do work, right? Yes, exactly. And through that, he really set up an entire practice at IFC and that he, became changed, advisory services. I think he services. the development finance sector, and you were part of that. I was part of it at the very end. So when I joined Harold— You joined it, him in the eighth inning at I his time at IFC. I joined him in the eighth inning where he was on to the next future next of development thing. issue, which was impact investing. Yes. He really saw that a lot of these SMEs that, that they were supporting had a double role. They were not only trying to make a profit and become good businesses and offer jobs, but they also had a social purpose. So for example, some of them were taking women from the sex traffic in Cambodia yeah. and were employing them at a soy factory. Uh, getting him out, factory, getting him out right? of the, getting him out of sex trafficking and put him into into legitimate economic activity. Exactly. Or you know, women who are starving in India. We work with an organization called Sewa that would help them not only get literate when it came to or, or numeric literacy, numeracy. literacy, numeracy. They would also help them sew all kinds of clothes that would be sold in Delhi and so on. Yeah. So it was really kind of an interesting. It was, a new, it was a new direction. It was a new direction that some businesses had a social purpose. It wasn't just about telecoms. It wasn't just about, we shouldn't just be investing in t- big telecoms, $100 million deals, or big hydropower plants, that if we're going to go down market into microfinance or even SMEs, that even further down in the, the small part of it, there was sort of a whole series of additional issues that were coming up. Correct. And that had a social, so some businesses literally had a social purpose and were trying to help people who were living at the base of the pyramid. And that's the department that Harold decided to set up at IFC, the which small, was all about, enterprise department. it was called, uh, at that point it was called the Grassroots Business Initiative. So this was spun out. So the work that he did this on the kind of the next step assistant. from SMEs. Right. The SME stuff that he did was in essence sort of a tech running and he at one point I think had more employees doing technical assistance work at IFC than investment officers. That's Is probably that correct? True. That's, That's probably, probably true. true. So I think they woke up one day and said, wait a minute, all these different regional pools of funds that you've set up have more technical assistance folks doing technical assistance than, than the main main IFC. It was a bigger a- operation than the main IFC. And they they're sort of it was shocking, I think, to the system. And they had to think about what did this mean? And they've, they've sort of had a series of but they knew that they needed technical assistance, and so he had he had kind of initiated it, and then they they then he then took it and said, we need to go further. If you go further down market, that you need technical assistance, you need investment capital, you need grant capital, and maybe these sort of these these social enterprises almost 
didn't necessarily need to operate on a, and did they need to operate on a full market return basis? So not really. So this was the recognition that Harold had, is that these businesses, because they were also delivering a social purpose, they were investors who were willing to specifically invest in those businesses and maybe take lower returns. So if you were a regular investor, if you were a pension fund who wanted a full market return in India, I'm making this up, but you'd want a 20% return on your investment in India, Whereas these kind of investors would say, I'm happy with a 5% return or a 3% return if I can ensure that 1,000 women are taken out of the sex traffic industry. Exactly. Right? This was exactly what we focused on. So we start, and we also recognize that these kinds of SMEs needed a different approach, right? So these were not the kind of SMEs that were going to go and do an IPO, that they really were very mission-driven. Right. So this this wasn't about pure private equity. This wasn't pure venture capital, and it wasn't regular bread and butter development finance work at an investment officer at IFC would do. Exactly. Right? Exactly, which is why after three years, we took the department out of IFC. It was spun out of IFC. It was spun out of IFC, and it became the Grassroots Business Fund, which still exists and thrives still today. Ten years later. Doing exactly that. So, And what IFC said is, we're going to give you some investment capital. We're going to give you some money to that's a little flexible. You don't need to make a full market return, and we're also going to give you some grant money to do technical assistance. Exactly. But go out and find other funders as well. Exactly, and we did. Okay, but let me press you a little bit on this, Agnes, because I've written, we wrote a paper on impact investing probably two years ago. We did a conference on it. We did a thing on blended finance that you you just recently saw, and we did a conference on that two or three months ago. How much of this is fluff? And how much of this is real? Like, how much is this like a real, how much of this is, I I mean, we're kind of polite and we say like it's an emerging sector. I mean, if you ask Harold Rosen, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I'd say this is a really hard thing that there actually aren't that many investors that actually, there's a lot of investors that, so IFC, if you push them, I say, are you a blended finance organization? Yeah, everything we do is blended finance. Or if I say to OPEC, impact investing, everything we do at OPEC is impact investing. So there's lots of people who, use these terms, impact investing and blended finance, and take a lot of license about what that means. And then I can go to investment banks, and there's a lot of investment banks that have an impact investing arm. But when I push them, it seems as if they still want a full market return. So how much of this is baloney, and how much of this is real? I really think it depends on how you look at it. Okay. But am so, I, on to, am I let crazy? Me just tell you. What am I saying? No, you're not. I think you're right. I think there's okay. a fa- so the way I think of it is the impact investing space. Yeah. First of all, it's growing, which I think is great. Okay. Because my prediction a few years ago was that not that the impact investing space would grow, but that regular investors would start thinking of impact as one of the lenses through which they look at their investments. The way they look at corporate social responsibility or thing, it's like another. Now they're filter. looking at investments exactly. Are they doing that? Yeah, so the way I think about it, some are. Yeah. So the way I think about it is, and in, is an investor mission first or finance first? Okay. If they're mission first, that means the the first lens they look at is the mission. So the one thousand women okay, okay. is mission. Let's go 10, with that. Ten thousand women. The ten thousand women getting an income to get themselves out of poverty is their number one lens. The second lens is finance, which means they usually want their money back or they want some sort of small return. But the mission for them is utmost. And then you have finance first. Finance first are OPEC, IFC, and others I would put in that. Are you skeptical? I'm skeptical in that uh, I don't know how they will implement it. I don't know how they will implement it. I think it's a great signal, right, to the market that 
financial investors, large financial investors are thinking about it. How long it's going to take them to implement and exactly how they will do it, that remains to be seen. But they are finance first. It's just they're adding a lens of impact to their regular investing, which I think is a step in the right direction. So that's how I think about it. Finance first or mission first. When you say it's growing, when you, what, how do you measure that growth? Is it is it the different traditional financiers saying they're going to use this as a lens? Is it people actually raising funds? How did you how would you talk about how would you say it's growing? What do you mean by I that? I think it's growing by what you just said, which is traditional financiers adding impact as a lens. Okay. And then how about how about this? So if or I, the shareholders I, actually demanding that they use that. So without put, you know, I don't want to speak for Harold Rosen, but I think if Harold Rosen was here, he would say there's still a lot of problems with the sector. He'll say there's a lot more talk than action. I think he would say this, and I think he'd say there's still a lot of money chasing this few same deals. That's are those two truth. Are those two statements true? That's true because I think there are very few deals that are both mission first and finance first. And those are the deals, the deals that are actually have a very strong impact and have good returns are very few and far between. Okay. But if you look at it as the mission first deals, there are plenty of those and the finance first deals, there are definitely plenty of those. Okay. So let's talk about- I just think that perfect middle is really difficult to find. So you were in private equity. You then went to IFC. You were there at IFC for five years, three years? About, yeah, five. Five. Then you were at Grassroots Business Fund for three? Three. And then you were, then you went. So you just you spun out of IFC to the grassroots business. Fund. Then somebody called you from AID. Yes. How did that happen? So somebody named John Vashilevsky, who was the founder of the Guarantee Program at called USAID, the called the Development Credit Authority, met me and said, "We're setting up a new office in the Africa Bureau, which wants to work with investors." Meaning that the agency was starting to pivot towards how do we not just fund everything ourselves, but how do we actually start working with the private sector? And I think you had something to do with that when you were there. It's, well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I, I think I think you must have had one of the most interesting jobs. I think John Vashlevsky at the Development Credit Authority and you probably had some of the most interesting jobs at AID at the time. I mean, you had support from pro- folks like probably Eric Postal, who's the Assistant Administrator for Economic for economic growth and other issues and so saw this, but also you had some thoughtful people in the Africa Bureau who also saw this as important. And the Partners Forum, which was private investors really uh, giving their time pro bono to advise on how USAID can get better, chaired by Dale Mathias, also a great friend and mentor of mine, who was really uh, behind the thinking she of was saying we need to have how to do capital this. and how do we bring this in and so so they said we're going to set up an office which rarely happens i mean it's wonderful when they do it and we're going to think about how do we bring in pcm so private capital and microenterprise and at first it was to look at africa correct tell us about two or three examples of the kinds of things that you did when you were at PCM at AID because I think this is very important. Correct. So the first thing that we did is we really focused on launching Power Africa. Power Africa was one of the first, it wasn't the first, but it was one of the first initiatives where USAID reached out to the private sector, talked to them about what were some of the issues that they were facing when trying to bring more power to sub-Saharan Africa and try to form an entire program that would help overcome those issues that the private sector was facing. So as a result, we were able to, just just to launch it, we were able to get, I want to say 30 to 40 private sector partners from GE to African banks to US banks. And we were able to bring all the other 
U.S. government agencies together to act in concert with those partners to really focus on how do we quickly deliver additional megawatts of power to sub-Saharan Africa. So the story I heard was that Mike Froman, who had a very senior job in the White House in the Obama administration, went to Africa and saw that the Chinese were eating our lunch when it came to power and power investments and building power, the power sector in Africa. We're spending, the United States has been spending on average between five and $10 billion a year of foreign assistance every year in Africa since 1990 or 1995. Uh, we spend about six just on uh, HIV, AIDS, and malaria in Africa. We spend enormous amounts. We've been very generous. We have very high standing in Africa. We've been a great friend of Africa. But it's a little galling to think we do all the, the less glamorous stuff and help Africa be a good partner on, the, on its way up. But then the Chinese swoop in and get all the economic upside. In my view, I think it's, out, I think it's kind of annoying and kind of frustrating. This is just Dan speaking. But I think, I'm not sure that was where Mr. Froman was coming from, but he was basically saying, wait a minute, don't we want to also participate in the upside of Africa and see Africa as an opportunity? And that was what prompted sort of a government-wide, a very interesting and very important innovation called this Power Africa. And so you were part of helping put that together? I was. And from USAID's point of view, this was really important because all the other programs that we were trying to do, health, education, agriculture, all of them were being stymied by the fact that there was people like living there did not have any electricity um, or affordable electricity. People were still using kerosene lamps. Di- diesel so, generators are super diesel. expensive. So, so, so this was a great innovation. I'm glad that it's been kept on by the Trump administration. But I think it's one of those things that should be replicated and scaled. I mean, these are fabulous lessons learned from the Power Africa initiative that you were involved with. Correct. So this is why we set up an office, which was, it's the Office of Private Capital and Microenterprise, still exists. And the purpose of the office is to really bring together multi-stakeholder solutions to different sectors across different regions. So one of the holy grails in the last 10 years plus has been, there's an enormous amount of international private capital in pension funds. So talk about how you thought about this because we did a conference last month and we had somebody from the National Association of Security Professionals, NASP, talk about their partnership that you helped build. Tell us a little bit about that. So we noticed early on that something was happening in these markets, especially in Africa, where you had a growing middle class and a growing middle class that was saving and was really saving for their retirement. So there were multiple pension schemes, private, public, in places like Kenya and Nigeria, which were accumulating lots of money. And what we felt was if that money can be unleashed to really invest in their own country, that would be transformative. However, that was not very easy because first of all, that money is highly regulated. And second, there are probably not enough products for these kinds of investors to really invest into in places like Kenya and Nigeria. So we then looked at the US pension fund industry and realized that they were really looking for returns that would full be- Full market returns. Full market returns, but they were really not getting great returns from developed markets, and they were looking to emerging markets. Because of low interest rates in the, in, in the OECD countries. Exactly, so what they started thinking about is how do we then go ahead and invest in places like Africa? So our, our idea was, can we 
put the African pension funds together with the U.S. pension funds, start the interaction so that the African pension funds would get the skills and the kind of structuring knowledge that comes from the U.S., and that the U.S. pension funds would get exposure to pipeline investment opportunities in Africa. And how do we make those partnerships happen so that together they can start investing in the continent? So I think, just just push just a little bit further on this, because what happened was there's my understanding is there's as much as nine trillion dollars in public pension funds in the united states oftentimes if agnes you and i were in the fire department in new orleans you and i as former firefighters over time would be placed into a position of trust by the other firefighters to say look you we trust you as firefighters you will administer the pension funds because you're you're one of us you and i as former firefighters who grew up in New Orleans may or may not have ever traveled out of the United States. Maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know what percentage of average Americans have a passport. I don't think it's more than 30%. So it could be that, or if I'm a school teacher in West Virginia and I'm helping manage the school teacher pension fund for West Virginia or the civil servant pension fund for the state of West Virginia, Often, I, you and I have worked our way up, and so we, you know, we are being told, well, we ought to think about emerging markets, or we even ought to think about Africa. If I, you or I have never been to Africa, that's a, it could be a big leap, because people have all sorts of mental images in their head, not because they're, it's just because what they've seen on television or what they've read in the newspaper, it oftentimes has a very negative view of many places outside the United States, or that oftentimes what's shown in the newspapers is bad news. And so if someone says, well, I want, you know, we want you to invest in Africa, I say, well, I don't know, you know, is that a safe thing? Is that a good thing? Right? Isn't that basically what the issue is? It is. Uh, well, it's one of the issues. It's but one that's, of the issues. It's a really, really big one. That's it's a, it's a gating one, right? issue. It's a gating issue, meaning like I can't even kind of get past that gate or sort of like if I've got concerns that it's just too risky. Correct. And what we ended up doing is bringing a lot of these people from the U.S., from you know, say, New Orleans hey Dan, and Chicago. Hey, Agnes, hey Dan, yeah, you right. oversee a uh, $500 million pension fund or a billion dollars or $2 billion. Now, you yourself don't make the decisions, but you ultimately are the approver of decisions. And so if some expert comes to you and says, you really don't think about Africa, I'm going to say, I don't know. I don't know. But if, you, if, if I've gone on this trip to South Africa and I've seen the capital markets there, I've seen the big buildings, I've seen the impressive infrastructure. I've been to Cape Town, which is a world-class city. I come back and say, oh my gosh, sure. I could see myself making an investment in, in water infrastructure in South Africa. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Or a telecoms company, knowing that the population is gonna double in the next 20 years, or there's a middle class of several hundred million that have cars and have financial services, and are, now it's an urbanizing society. Yeah, I could see that. So we brought them to Johannesburg. And for example, we took them to see the Johannesburg Stock Exchange to say, look, there's an actual stock exchange that looks like any other stock exchange. And they met people who invest on that exchange. They met companies that are operating all over Africa. They met a lot of people who are investing that they could invest alongside of. So the local pension funds, which I think was really eye-opening for them, that some of these pension funds were bigger than they were. And they were actually placing money on the continent well. So that was a huge eye-opening moment. And all of those people came back to the U.S. with those ideas and then started talking to their own investment committees about, look, this is a possibility. We can potentially place some money there. This is a real opportunity. It's a win-win. We can it's get a, a full market return. It's not as risky as I thought. My perception of risk is, was incorrect. 
I have a much better sense of it now that I've seen it. So that probably cost a couple million dollars from the U.S. taxpayers. It was, it was less than two million. Okay, and how much how much money has gone from pension funds in the United States now to Africa? So it's more than a hundred million. More recent, the the first transaction was the pension fund of the city of San Francisco invested in an infrastructure fund that was focused on energy in Africa. And how much did they put? A hundred million. So for and two that million was just bucks, the we got a hundred million bucks in Africa. And, and it wasn't even two million. The two million was a two year commitment to keep bringing people Folks. back to the continent, and has which the, they've done several times. And they've done several times. And so in essence. It's probably going to be, I'm guessing, in the next, between now and the end of, in, in eight, six, 12 months' time, it'll be $500 million, is my guess. At least. That, is that a fair number? At least, yeah. Because it sounds like she, uh, Donna Sims Wilson, who's the president of NASP and also pre- the, chair, the of chair of NASP, and she's the president of her own investment company in Houston, said at our Global Development Forum there was at least several hundred million dollars, but she had several more things to share in the near future. Correct. So I'm going to guess it's at least going to be by... By that, you know, if by maybe it's not by next spring, by March of 2019, there'll be at least $500 million of investments catalyzed by this investment from aid. That's right. And I think the other important part of that is that the pension funds in Africa are now looking at U.S. investor advisors okay. to help them invest in the U.S. So, so just let's just spend a minute on that because I think this is an important insight that there's a lot of capital. One of the things you've said to me over the years, Dan, is, Dan, there is a lot of local savings, local capital markets, there's local pensions in Africa because there's an emerging middle class. There's a lot, there's a number of, there are, there are sovereign wealth funds in Africa. There's an Angolan one. There's one in Botswana. There's other countries as well. Nigeria must have one, I'm guessing. Yeah. So all this, there's a ton of money in Africa. And some of that money is coming to the U.S., right? Isn't that your point? Exactly. The point is that that money will keep growing. And they're also looking for investable opportunities. And to the extent, you know, investment to me is about partnership and about getting to know the people that you're going to invest with. So through this partnership, they're getting to know people in the U.S. that are doing investments in the U.S. And that will help bring some of the money it's here. It's fabulous. It's fabulous. Okay, so what? So you, you had a fabulous run at AID. You were there five years. Mm-hmm. Thanks for your public Close service. Six. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for your public service. So what are you doing now? So right now, I'm actually looking at very similar issues that I saw in emerging markets in the U.S. But you're wearing, what hat do you wear? I am a fellow at the Rockefeller Foundation, and I'm focused on looking at ways that philanthropies and public resources can be used to accelerate investment in underserved areas in the U.S., which are really facing very similar issues. So are you saying that the international development practice that's been built over 50 years and saying the, the development finance practice that sort of has gone through sort of a series of major changes in the last 30 years, of which for the last 25, you've been a part of a lot of these, you're saying you could bring a lot of both development and DFI practice and change and bring that to the United States? Yes, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Things like guarantees. Things like blended capital, so blending public resources with private resources to accelerate investment in places that are perceived right now as being too risky by traditional investors in the U.S. Could be, say, a rural part of West Virginia. Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga, Tennessee. I mean, there's lots of... Morgantown, West Virginia. Exactly. And and the last time I checked, there's a lot of creative people, a lot of entrepreneurs in those parts of the country. There are. And they need investment, and some of them need technical assistance. Some of them need the same exact thing. Some of them need guarantees so that their local bank will take the risk and actually give them a loan or a working capital loan. That's amazing. What a cool project. We're going to want to follow that more carefully. Will you come back and t- share with Love our to. podcast audience 
I would what love you're to. learning when you as you as you work on this. I think that would be it's really exciting. Fabulous, fabulous. We're we're very excited that you're doing this. You're a real change agent in the business. We're really glad you took time to do this. Could you just, I've got one last question for you. So there's been a lot of discussion about a new uh, development finance institution in Washington to look overseas, sort of think of it like OPIC on steroids. So one of the things that's been talked about is where different things in the U.S. government should live. Does AID need to have some kind of a function to work with the private sector along the lines of of what you used to do it? Because there's been some talk about saying, well, we should take the sorts of things that Agnes was doing and bring it to the new development finance organization. It's a little bit of an inside baseball question, but should should AI doesn't AID need that kind of a capacity? I think there's a spectrum of working with the private sector towards development out- outcomes, and I think USAID has a role in that. I think working the whole- at a sector level, working a- with regulators, right. helping create the con- creating a market for things like NAF. Those are all strike me as things appropriate for AID. Exactly. I think building the local markets, I think trying to figure out how does DFI works locally as well. I mean, this DFI will need a local presence that will be very difficult to build from scratch. So I think that that kind of local partnership, local relationship ability on the part of USAID is something that would be really valuable to the DFI. Do you think they're going to need a lot of secondments or rotations between the two organizations? I think they'll have to figure something out like that because I I don't see how you can just build an entire cadre of investment officers in places like Africa overnight. Fine. Let me just have one last question for you. Enterprise funds. So AID pioneered in the early 90s about 10 enterprise funds. Then in 2011, two additional ones were set up. Do you, is there, I, I believe there's still a space for enterprise funds, even with a new DFI. Is that your view? Should we ha- try and create new enterprise funds? I think it depends where. I mean, I think there are places in the world where traditional investors will not go, no matter what you do. I think that's the place for enterprise funds. Okay. I mean, you know, when the enterprise fund was set up in Poland, there were no venture capital or private equity investors no in Poland. And it kind of started the industry. Not only did it invest in local businesses, it started an entire cadre of investment officers who were Polish, who learned from the American counterparts that came to work with them there, who then went on to be incredibly successful venture capitalists and private equity providers all over the Central all over the Central Europe. Eastern Europe. Yeah, that's fabulous. I think that's a key outcome that I think in some places where they're still needed. There are parts of Africa. Still There's still parts of Africa. There may be what about Central America, the Northern Triangle? Could you see that? You know, probably. I, I don't see why not. I mean I think it all I think you have to take a look. I'm not as okay. familiar with Central yeah, America. But I think those are all I think those are all. All right. Agnes, thanks a lot. Thank you. What a pleasure.